All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 17th day of July, 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and that you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com. Or you can call our office in New York during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. And if you go to miningstocks.com, you can also catch up with the important articles concerning all the companies that are covered in my newsletter. And there are quite a few of those names there. And whenever there's something very significant or important uh, with respect to those companies, I make sure that the links to those articles are posted on the homepage at findingstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises. Send them along to questions for taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are RN Resources, Bamoro Resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., Northern Empire Resources, and Novo Resources. I've titled today's show, Gold Back Bonds, an idea whose time has come. David Jensen, Keith Weiner, Keith Weiner, I should pronounce his name correctly, and Michael Oliver return. Now, David during the will be with us after the first commercial break, and he will explain why Trump's anti-mainstream policies are logical in stopping trade deficits and the exportation of manufacturing jobs from the uh, from the Americans that Hillary Clinton labeled as deplorables, those folks that live in flyover country. David will be with me, as I mentioned, after the first commercial break. Keith Weiner will join me in the second half of today's show to provide serious thoughts about an inevitable monetary reset triggered by Keynesian economics that has not only destroyed capital but also forbidden currency price discovery. And he will explain why he expects a return to gold-backed bonds by state governments, perhaps starting with Nevada, which has just passed a law allowing the state to borrow using gold-backed bonds. We want to find out from Keith why the time has come uh, for the idea of gold-backed bonds and and what drives uh, that or what drivers are in place to make that an inevitable event in in his view. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that we do have Michael Oliver with me once again um, to help soothe our nerves on a day in which the gold markets have gotten hammered pretty hard. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Yeah, so um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having a nervy bust here. Well, that's probably over, oh. <laughs> an overstatement. We've been through downturns in gold for a long time, and many years I've been at this, so it's not nothing really new. But the gold markets are pretty weak today. What's your take? My take is that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, mid-month, last month, we put out a report that said if uh, it had already hit 1240, by the way, at that point, and we said it uh-huh. bounced to 1260, and we said if you touch 1240 again, there's going to be a mini panic. Now, mm-hmm. so far, I can't even define this as a mini panic because we dropped all of $14 or 1% below the 1240 level. But in the process, mm-hmm. you finally took out a prominent prior price low. That was December low of last year, uh, which was in the 1230s. So this entire decline, which is now in its seventh month since our January highs, uh, has finally come down and nipped out a prior price low. Now, anybody drawing trend lines on price charts, and I used to do that early in my career at E.F. Hutton as a futures mm-hmm. broker until I learned better. Um, <clears throat> Anybody can draw a trend line on a price chart. Some people don't even know how to do it properly. There are proper and improper ways to draw lines. But drawing trend lines on price charts is often a coin toss. It often creates traps because anybody can do it. And if everybody mm-hmm. can do it, uh, it's usually wrong. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As Joe sure. Gamble said. Uh, so we rely on momentum. And I put out a report uh, about two hours ago to our subscribers showing the current weekly bar chart decline since early in the year and the weekly momentum, which is now in, on that time scale, it's an ancient decline. When you're in six, seven months of weekly oscillator decline, that's off the page old. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in the, this, this late in the trend, have nipped out a prior low. So in other words, people go screaming from the rooms because you took out a prior low. Okay, fine. That needs to happen mm-hmm. in any bull or bear market. You cannot have a pattern of ascending, let's say, in a bull market, of continually ascending higher lows. Whereas every time you have a sell-off, it stops at a higher level. If that happens, what you do is you set up a trend line, and then everybody can see it. Mm -hmm. To clean out a market, to make sure it's primed to go the other way, you almost Mm -hmm. always have to go nip out something that's conspicuous. Mm -hmm. See what happens once it happens. Do you fall apart? Or is it a brief panic and then you reverse back up? I'm suspecting it's the latter because of the age of the trend. It's non-confirmed on weekly momentum and so forth. Uh, Plus, then in the same report we covered, I I went back and I went back to 2000, year 2000, and I showed gold annual momentum and how it behaved from the 2000 upside breakout that lasted, a bull trend that lasted until 2008 peak. And it was a three-wave, massive annual momentum uptrend. But if you examine this internals, both in price and on on the momentum chart, this is big picture stuff now, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of zigzags to the downside during that eight-year period, which you would have made a ton of money Mm -hmm. being long gold. But if you flinched at every time it went down 10% or 15%, and there were so many times that happened that it was ridiculous, uh, and a lot of the times, the price chart would break some prior low or break some stupid trend line. So uh, all I can say is anybody who wants to flinch every time gold has hiccuped, and it's hiccuped a good couple times. In fact, the big one was in December 2016. That sell-off was quite deep, deep much bigger mm-hmm. than this one, uh, that you'll miss the move. So if there is a major up move coming in gold, which we argue there is, and we think we're only in the first leg up, 
and then the corrective pullback after the first leg up before the second leg emerges. Uh, usually there's three major waves in any annual momentum trend. Then you'll get flinched out of this market and you'll miss it. So my, my suggestion is to people who want to be long, be sure if you're long, you're not so leveraged mm-hmm. that a 10 or 15% pullback here and there won't kick you out every single time because otherwise you're going to miss it. Sure. So be sure your position is fitting to your your personal capabilities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. No, I, and, I hear you. Then, you don't want to get triggered out and lose everything. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's simply no trend in the world other than the crash in 29, which was over in, you know, weeks, and the 87 crash that is from A to Z, you know, done in, in weeks. I mean, the, any multi-year trend has got to have counter-trend moves, either up in a bear market or down in a bull market, that are such that they scare people out. And in order to scare people out, you usually have to go down and take something out that they say, oh, my God, it took out a low. And so everybody runs. Uh, and, and we just took out the December pivotal low, which is not all that pivotal. It's just a conspicuous low on a chart. <clears throat> so if somebody was long saying, I'm going to run if it takes that out, well, they're gone. Now, you know, maybe they're right. I don't think they are. I think they'll probably not get back in. And that's the real problem is if you exit every time something like that happens, all you have to do is fail to get back in one time, and you've missed it. So we're near the low. We've taken out those lows, and, and you think we're primed for... I think we're primed, you know, know, if they want to go down and hit 1,200, there's some point-and-figure people out there keeping 50-point by three-block reversal point-and-figure charts will get pretty excited about the upside because what you'll have then done is set up a double top at 1,350, if you touch 1,200, by the way. Mm -hmm. If you turn back up to 1,350, it's a triple top breakout waiting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, on a big-scale price chart basis, uh, some people see this pullback as potentially bullish. I don't know if you'll get the 1,200. Uh, but you at least took out the December low of last year, which is a prior conspicuous low. But it took you seven months to get down to that low, which is mm-hmm. an arduous process. And, uh, you know, I don't know that the clock, uh, which is a technical factor, you know, time is a technical factor, not just lines on a chart. Um, and to spend seven months of trying to arm wrestle your way down to take out some prior low is kind of exhaustive. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Uh, but uh, we're still bullish on annual momentum, and uh, this looks very much like the period of 2003 through 2005. Mm-hmm. And what followed this, that period of time was a massive bolt on the upside. Boy, was it uh, ever. Well, Michael, it's just a, yeah. about a minute left here yet. Uh, do we need to see, I mean, the, the equity market just, it seems like it's never going to correct, although when I look at your structure momentum charts, certainly uh, it, you can see it's breaking down. But do we yeah. need to see a real significant decline in the equities yeah. before people start getting excited about gold, perhaps? Help. That will help. There's no doubt that will help commodity assets, particularly gold, in that if you shake people out of that category, they'll go look somewhere else. And frankly, the bond market doesn't look too good. So you're pretty mm-hmm. much left with, well, let's buy some cheap commodities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly uh-huh. the food commodities that haven't had their recovery yet, unlike copper and, and oil, which are, by the way, mm-hmm. are breaking down, which should mm-hmm. not be interpreted well by the stock bulls. Uh-huh. Those are the two commodities that uh, tend to link to economic trends and to the stock market. And the stock market. Uh, gold, okay. grains, and sugar and so forth don't, but those do, and they're breaking down. All right. All right, Michael. Well, we'll have to let it go at that. I thank you so much okay. for, your, uh, for your lengthy explanation on, on the gold charts. Very important to us today in a day in which uh, the gold markets are getting hit pretty hard. Not that hard, as you put it into perspective, but nonetheless, uh, for those of us that are on the long side, 
a, not a pleasant experience. Uh, but thanks for helping us out with that. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, uh, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because David Jensen will be with me to try to make some sense of Trump's economic policies and why uh, we may be triggering a trigger point, he, David believes, for gold. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David Jensen. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me my friend, David Jensen. Um, for those of you who may not know David, well, he was a, a fairly regular guest a couple of years back, but he hasn't been on for a while, so there may be some of you who aren't familiar with him. He is a professional engineer with a degree in engineering from the University of Waterloo in Canada in 1987, and he worked uh, through, through 1993 on the F-5 fighter overhaul program and the Bombardier regional jet programs. Uh, he graduated with a degree in corporate and commercial law from the University of Calgary in 1997, received an MBA from University of BC in 1999, uh, and then he became uh, a real student of Austrian economics, which is one of the reasons uh, that David and I have a lot in common. Uh, he transitioned to the mining industry from an aerospace industry in 2004, first uh, through his mining industry consultancy and then as vice president of corporate development for Western Copper Corp., and most recently as president and COO of Skyline Gold, and currently he serves as president and COO of a private mining company and provides strategic operational risk assessment, precious metals consulting services through his consultancy, Jensen 
Strategic. Thanks for joining me again, David. Hi, Jay. It's uh, great to be back with you. Great to have you on with me. And I, I really, um, you've been talking a, about a possible trigger point for gold, which is why I really wanted to have you on today. Uh, but before we get to that, there are a couple of definitions and ideas that I think are really need to be discussed for our listeners because they set the stage for why you think we may be nearing a trigger point for gold. Uh, first of all, can you discuss discuss a concept known as Triffin as the Triffin dilemma, and now how that has been responsible for America's chronic trade deficit, loss of jobs for middle class Americans ever since Nixon took us off the gold standard? Yeah, sure, sure, Jay. Um, yeah, Triffin, the Triffin dilemma, um, in in general terms, uh, says that when you are a country uh, issuing a reserve currency. Um, thus one held abroad uh, in their banking reserves that you have to act uh, against the interests of of your own country and that's the dilemma is that there's a, there's a uh, potential benefit from being a reserve currency issuer but that uh, in this case uh, specifically that um, when you're issuing uh, the US dollar as a reserve currency you have to export that dollar and that dollar uh, is utilized in in global trade whether it's for oil uh, for other trade that is denominated in USD and so what it, what is happening is that you export that dollar primarily through running trade deficits so you're importing more goods than you export and when you pay for those goods you import you're exporting your dollars now what harms your country is that you're also exporting jobs when you're importing goods from other countries um, it, you're bringing in uh, currently about $500 billion a year more of goods than, than you are exporting, and you're exporting those jobs. And it's not just that $500 billion number. There's a multiplier uh, when you look at manufacturing jobs. So you, you could you could multiply that number by one and a half to two um, when you look at the net harm that you're doing to your economy. Um, we're seeing now in the States that I, I double-checked the numbers recently. There's 95.5 million people not in the uh, labor force, and there's 42 million people on food stamps. And if you uh, looked uh, using the uh, 1990 uh, BLS method of calculating unemployment, you'd be running around 22% of your population is unemployed. Wow. That's... Uh that's that's significant and and you know people we keep getting numbers that are that are not you know that that dismiss that 95.5 million people that are that are not in the labor force that yeah. that should be there uh, they dismiss that and so we have a high we seemingly as though we have full employment beyond that now is what they're telling us which yeah, is they, they, uh, dis- really, they discount those sorry for interrupting Jay but they yeah. discount those numbers by saying if you haven't actively applied for a job um, in the last two weeks, um, then you are not in the labor force, and as a consequence, you're not unemployed. So that's how they get from 22% to 3.8%. And then the, the idea that manufacturing jobs are wealth creators, uh, they're not just hamburger flippers, they're not service jobs, they're jobs that once you have a manufacturing, a mining project or a manufacturing project, it's not only those jobs directly, but ancillary jobs, jobs to service those industries that are that's why you get the one and a half to two times, I guess, right. uh, figure, right? Yeah, and, and so what President Trump uh, now is trying to, uh, he, he recognizes that uh, there is a terminal decline here and that 
um, ultimately it becomes an existential threat. If you lose enough jobs, um, you, you get social disruption. And it appears uh, that, that Donald Trump does understand this. And he's saying, you know, about those tra- trade deficits, uh, we're done. And so parenthetically, the issue is that if you're going to reduce those trade deficits, you are no longer going to uh, export adequate U.S. dollars. Uh, you are reducing the export of jobs, but you're also reducing the export of dollars. And as a consequence, uh, what you have is ultimately a dollar liquidity crisis. There's a shortage of dollars uh, globally uh, that are needed uh, in, in use of that as a as a reserve currency. So the point here that I'm uh, making, Jay, is that, uh, that there, there's ultimately going to have to be a stand down in the U.S. dollar as uh, the global reserve currency as these uh, trade deficits are reduced and as Americans are put back to work. Yeah, if we look at Trump's policies now, I'm thinking in terms of his tariffs, uh, asking Europe to pay their fair share for NATO expenses, a rollback of the Iranian nuclear deal, which impacts uh, uh, impacts the trade with uh, with Europe and, and hence uh, with Iran not accepting dollars anymore, a reduction of, of dollars needed overseas. Uh, you're really looking at this liquidity crisis and I would guess there's you know all kinds of reasons why the establishment is so opposed to Trump's economic policies. Uh, never mind the social policies. That's another that's another uh, another topic. But in terms of um, some of those policies, do you see them as being directly related to Trump's uh, Trump's goal of of, rec- of creating jobs in Middle America for people manufacturing jobs? These higher higher quality jobs that that have gone overseas mm-hmm. since 1971 do you see the, his policies as as being geared towards that then well uh, i think what you what you have when you when you run these types of deficits for a protracted period and and, and by the way there's also uh, us technology that's being exported to uh-huh. uh, countries like china which 30 years ago um, you know they were excavating using wicker baskets um, now the technology and, and machinery and equipment and know-how is being exported there as well. But from a globalist perspective, what you have is ultimately transfer of U.S. wealth and transfer of U.S. economic activity to other parts of the world, which brings them up. But there's also this uh, protracted bleed-out of America, which brings America down. It levels basically the global uh, playing field in the end. And with a globalist perspective, what you want to do if you want to unite the world into a global economy, you can't do it if there's great diversity in in terms of the wealth of these countries. So there's a a gradual drawdown of the wealth uh, and activity in America and impoverishment of America and a bringing up of the rest of the world um, at the same time. So it's, I think this is where Trump stands as as the uh, firm opponent of the globalist agenda in that he's he, he's indicating that, that, that they're done with this type of, of a policy and, and the destruction that it's causing in, in middle America. And, and you can see it through, uh, through things like, as well, the, the desperation that's caused in terms of the, the fentanyl addiction crisis that you have in America and, and the tens of thousands of people who are dying on this um, uh, drug every year um, in in the most economically impacted areas of America and in middle America. David, as, uh, as, a, as a growing economic power, China has been complaining about the benefits of the U.S. that the U.S. enjoys as holding the world's reserve currency. Of course, I think, as you just pointed out, owning the reserve currency has its price as well. But 
but China's lo- China, and along with Russia, have been setting up an infrastructure. Uh, especially China, I guess, is funding the infrastructure to compete against the dollar hegemony. A couple of the institutions that they have set up are the Shanghai Petroleum Exchange and Shanghai Gold Exchange. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the importance of those institutions and how they may uh, may play a role in the demise of the dollar or dollar hegemony? Well, yeah, sure. The the the, the trading of the yuan uh, priced uh, oil futures contract started on March 26 um, in Shanghai, and a feature of this uh, of this contract was that its settlement and the and the first settlement of, of the contract is in in September coming up. Um, was that it is settled in yuan, but it can uh, you can take delivery of physical gold in the Shanghai free trade zone and export the gold back to the to the oil uh, 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 source of origin. And this was a a trade that existed prior to 1974 when when Kissinger made the agreement with OPEC that they would only accept U.S. dollars. It was called the petrogold trade. And there's a number of aspects to this, but number one is that, uh, and I, I've been posting um, on Twitter um, uh, back in, in April and May about this uh, on my channel, uh, Real David Jensen. Um, and uh, the issue is that you end up with, I think, a, a bifurcated um, uh, oil market where if you're paying with, with uh, fiat currencies, you're going to pay a, a quite a high price. In comparison, if you're paying with something like gold, which has a has intrinsic value, so the trade of gold with intrinsic value is exchanged for uh, oil with intrinsic value would be much more attractive, I think, to the oil suppliers. And we've seen I mean, the the news reports started to come out in September, October last year, and uh, at the beginning of of September of 2017, oil was priced at about $45 a barrel. It's recently been $75 a barrel. This uh, last couple of trading days, it's been driven down to, to the high 60s. Um, but you're still looking at roughly a, a $30 a barrel increase. And, and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, they're quoted in an article on oilprice.com. They estimated that a, a $1 million, sorry, a $1 million barrel a day constriction uh, in oil supply would result in their estimate of about a $17 a barrel increase. So what we've seen is is in round numbers, a $30 increase in the price, which would uh, be associated with a, a 2 million barrel a day constriction in supply. And um, uh, your kiner of Swiss Asia Capital was on Bloomberg um, last week, and he said, I don't see I don't see the justification for this oil price right now. I think as we move towards September, uh, with the settlement of oil, that we're going to see a new uh, one, a new oil price, um, a fiat oil price, and, and uh, two, we're going to see a new gold market. And these are things uh, that I agree with strongly. In that the the draw, just just in round numbers here, uh, if we're looking at one million barrels a day, um, China's importing in round numbers about nine million barrels a day. If they take one million barrel a day in oil and deliver gold bars for that. That equates to 20% of the world's uh, uh, gold mine supply on an annual basis. So, you know, they can really impact, uh, you know, with a sustained 1 million barrel a day uh, oil delivery for gold, they can have a material impact uh, on the world's gold market. And and parenthetically, again, uh, Russia has been accepting gold for oil as well, as we know. So we have a number of oil producers moving in this direction, uh, ultimately, I think, and Okay, Inter- David. Let, interesting let that Russia and Iran are the targets of, of aggression okay. of, of, the, of the West right now. Of course, of course. Now, listen, uh, we just with a couple of minutes left here, yeah. 
that could be one tipping point, I guess. You're suggesting it come September. We'll watch that. Yeah. But you're also talking about this huge amount of offshore dollars that have been borrowed by Chinese banks. Yeah. Your feeling is that that could lead to an illiquidity crisis, I believe, because where are the dollars going to come from yeah. with the dollar gaining uh, yeah. value since yeah. those bo- loans are booked and with interest rates rising? Talk a little bit about that because I think that was also a potential tipping point that you see yeah. uh, for the gold markets, right? Yeah, just finishing off one quick point. Uh, London operates on a, the, uh, the London market, the gold market, which is 90% of daily trading, operates on a gold in, gold out basis. They have very little inventory. So any additional draw through oil or through the, the uh, Chinese banking uh, crisis, which I see building, I think will have a material impact on that market because they okay. don't have, have the gold. Um, in terms of China, um, it's very strange that their domestic uh, state-run banks have borrowed $2 trillion in the offshore interbank market, uh, in the euro-dollar market, and then they've lent these dollars out locally, and as the Fed's been sequentially raising interest rates, it's caused a bit of a problem because the interest rate on U.S. dollars has has been rising both there and in the LIBOR uh, measure, Um, and and also the fact that, that the DXY has risen, so the dollars in terms of one become more expensive. And so the Chinese borrowers, whether the banks uh, who have lent the money out again uh, internally uh, to domestic borrowers, those domestic borrowers have to pay in dollars in the end, both the interest um, and to pay off the principal. And it's become very, very difficult for them um, now with, with both the dollar index rising and with interest rates rising. And the problem that China has is that they cannot print U.S. dollars. They can print yuan. But ultimately what's happening here, there's pressure being put on the yuan in terms of yuan holders are buying dollars with one um, and and ultimately selling one to buy dollars, mm-hmm. and we we saw uh, China uh, two days ago the P- the PBOC uh, central bank uh, had had a uh, fifty billion dollar uh, reverse um, uh, sorry a liquidity event there in terms of a, a reverse repo happening in the market. So they they basically took fifty billion dollars of one liquidity out of the market to support the one. And they've been supporting it at 6.7 uh, to the U.S. dollar, but it, it's being challenged again now. So over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that market price uh, pressured twice at that level. And I, I think there's a real issue here. David Stockman was pointing out just how low China's reserves, even though they're $3 trillion, as a ratio of M2, the broad money stock, they're approaching 10%. And this is lower than what uh, Thailand had during the Thai bot crisis. So if there's mm-hmm. a run on the one. It's, it's a run which is beyond the scope of the People's Bank of China to deal with. So there's another potential uh, game changer in terms of the markets and, and they run away from uh, declining assets uh, such as the yuan into things that uh, hold real intrinsic value like gold. So both the oil market and this building crisis, I don't understand, Jay, uh, how the state banks could have had this as a policy to mm-hmm. ultimately be shorting the dollar to that extent of two trillion dollars, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a strange it's a strange situation. Well, I guess that's a mystery that we'll have to ponder for another day because we are out of time. But thank you so much, David, for explaining this to us. Very interesting, very important, very fascinating topic. Thanks again, and we'll hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks for your time, right. Jay. You bet. Well, folks, don't go away because Keith Weiner is going to be back with me to talk about uh, why the time has come for gold-backed bonds. Very important, another very important discussion with Keith Wiener. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Keith Weiner. He's been with me a couple of times in the past. Uh, for those who, of you who may not be familiar with him, uh, he, is, uh, he is a founder of Monetary Metals. That's the leading authority in the areas of gold, money, and credit, and has made important contributions to the development of trading techniques founded upon the analysis of bid-ask uh, spreads he is the founder of Diamondware, that's a software company he sold to Nortel in 2008, and he currently serves as president of the Gold Standard Institute, USA. Uh, he earned his PhD from the New Austrian School of Economics. Welcome, Keith, and thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me again. Really good to have you with us, and you know, I should tell our listeners right away uh, because there's so much good information there. It's monetary-metals.com, monetary-metals.com uh, to catch up on all of, uh, I think, well, I don't know all of, but much of what Keith does. There's a lot of products that are available uh, that I hope we'll have a moment or two to talk about as well today before uh, this, uh, this uh, segment ends. Uh, Keith, I'd like to focus today on an article that you wrote on July 2nd titled Gold-Backed State Bonds, an idea whose time has come. In general, what are the factors that need to take place for a new idea, not only to emerge, but to be embraced and enacted in a society? So that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it was Cato Institute put out a book called Bootleggers and Baptists that talked about when you have a evil regime or evil institution, such as prohibition, 
um, or for that matter, Jim Crow laws, um, that you have two groups that have this unholy alliance, uh, and one is the bootleggers. Those are the people who break the law, and of course, breaking the law has been made highly profitable because um, the law makes it illegal for people to, to do business in the ordinary way, so uh -huh. the criminal gangs can get rich. And then you have the Baptists, so-called, uh, in this analogy, uh, the moralizers who give cover to what would otherwise be pretty obvious as a, um, as a bad thing. And why do we make it illegal for people to put alcohol into their bodies? Or why do we make it illegal for restaurants to serve people regardless of their skin color? Hmm. Well, that's because uh, a lot of people feel or felt at the time that those were the morally right things to do. And so I think to change it, then you kind of have to reverse that. You have to show that there is a financial benefit to changing the regime. Uh, the current example of that, I think, overwhelmingly clear now is marijuana. States are reversing it. Um, and what had been a blue issue, a Democrat issue, uh, and who wants to smoke weed is generally on the, on the left side of the uh, aisle, uh, is now rapidly becoming a right issue because there's a lot of business to be done and a lot of money to be made and a lot of tax revenues to the states that are legalizing pot. Um, and you have to also make the moral case. You have to argue that changing the regime, the old regime is bad and the new one is good. Um, and that takes, um, for the first step as, as a public intellectual to put something out there into, into the public conversation and then for it to get some traction. And that is, that is the path, that's the, um, the, the game plan that I see for re-monetizing gold. Yeah, you, you mentioned in your article, you, you quoted Victor Hugo, um, in which uh, he, uh, well, you quoted him in English, uh, it's uh, literally translated, an invasion of armies can be resisted, an invasion of ideas cannot be resisted. So, with regard to this issue of gold and gold, you know, we, we have a lot of good ideas, uh, but good ideas can sit on the back burner for a long time. There are a lot of bad ideas that can, that can really, uh, can also persist for a long, long time. And we've had what I think is a really bad idea, Keynesian economics, government intervention, interference, the monetary system. Um, but specifically, what, I mean, what, what are the forces in play right now uh, that, that may be changing uh, this notion that uh, Keynesian economics is, is the cure-all for all our problems. So I think, um, just to go back to Victor Hugo for a moment, it's interesting that the common translation, and this is the one that I heard, and so when I went to Google search it, this is what I thought I was looking for, and I thought it would be somebody like Gandhi who said it. Um, the, the common translation from the French to the English is nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that was the sense and the context in which he said that. That, you know, you, yeah, you can have a really crappy idea. The French had absolute monarchy, what they called uh, Ancien Regime, uh, for hundreds of years. I don't know if it was four or five hundred years before the French Revolution. It was a long time. And then before that, they had other various other flavors of monarchy. Um, and so what had happened by 1789 was the time had come. And so the question is, has the time come now? And, and if so, why? And I think, I think the answer is yes. I think we're on the early edge of it. But I think the major force uh, that I would identify is they've, just, they've waged a war on interest, and they've won. 
I mean, yeah, I know the, the interest rates come back up a bit, although not that anybody with a bank account would see it. The banks aren't paying interest. Um, the Treasury yeah. bond is. Uh, it's come up a bit, but I, I think that's just one correction along the way. My challenge to anybody who says interest rates have turned around and are now rising is can you identify what has caused them to fall for 35 or 36 or 37 years and why that force has suddenly changed? And I, you know, I read a lot about it, I don't, and I don't think it has. So with a, with a drop in interest rates, people can't earn interest anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that means people that are working for wages cannot. It's impossible now to achieve their retirement goals. When, I, when I'm just old enough, when I started my career, the standard advice was set aside 10% of your salary, put it in the bank, like in three months or six months CDs. And by the time you turn 65 years old, you have 1.5 million, which is enough to live on. Well, you know, 85 or 90% of that 1.5 million was not the set aside from your salary. It was a compounded interest. And so today you can't get compounded interest. And so you can't attain your retirement goals unless you speculate on some bubble. Um, and I think there, there's a, uh, aware, some awareness that whole generations can't get rich speculating on whatever the latest bubble is. Sure, mm-hmm. if you're nimble and you're smart and you're clever, you can get in early and get out early. But um, you know the average, the market, um, you know cannot. And so, um, and then the same thing if you re- if you attain retirement, doubly you you shouldn't be speculating on bubbles. How are you supposed to live in retirement with no interest? Uh, and so, um, you know what people do is they they're forced to liquidate their capital. And so we have a monetary system that's forced us in liquidation mode. And that is causing all manner of problems, um, especially amongst workers who are marginalized by this. And I know, I know the employment numbers are up right now, um, but I think uh, uh, the trend, the very long-term trend is clear. Workforce participation rate uh, is declining. Record numbers of people not counted in the workforce, 96 million, I think. Um, and so I think that's, what causes people to question is there something wrong mm-hmm. and um, and I, I think we're at that point yeah people are starting to feel it and they know something's wrong they may not be able to put their fingers on it but they as well they certainly can see that they're not keeping up you're not getting any interest that's an obvious that's an obvious one to most people I believe um, now of course your your company provides uh, some yield uh, for a currency that over time doesn't lose its value, that's gold. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about what kind of yields can people get if they own gold, they they can invest it through your firm, uh, and then you, uh, and what, what kind of yields can the investor get uh, who who owns gold that, that might want to, uh, to get some yield on their gold? Because, you know, that's one of the big excuses that I've always heard from the mainstream is, Ah, what do you want to own gold for? You can't get any yield, uh, you know. So, what can people? First of all, how much how much gold do people need to have just to invest with your firm with monetary metals? And what kind of yield can they get? Can it, can it say a retail person like myself? How what can I get for my X amount of ounces of gold? So the minimum account size is ten ounces, mm-hmm. which at today's prices is a little over twelve thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, we go deal by deal, so we're not a fiduciary in that you give us your metal to invest on your behalf. Sure, uh, but rather um, uh, more like a market maker, where we present different deals, different opportunities. Um, we've had deals in the range of two percent 
to 3.75%. Uh, and that depends on the nature of the company who's using the gold and the risks and the flows uh, involved in that. Okay. And uh, and each deal is different. So can you talk to the risks that, involve, that are involved? And I think that you had some sort of insurance, I believe, on one of your deals recently that sort of uh, cut back the risk. Maybe the yield wasn't quite as high. Yeah, so um, obviously with lower risk comes um, lower yield. Uh, although to put this in perspective, I gave a talk recently at the um, Harvard Club in New York. Mm-hmm. So I uh, hanging on the on the wall amongst all the memorabilia was a gold bond um, <laughs> issued in 1905 by a railroad had a 92 year maturity matured in 1998. Wow! The interest rate was three point five percent for 92 wow. year duration risk. Wow! Um, and so, um, so, so that sort of benchmarks uh, uh, this a little bit. Um, we uh, so so in in our case, it is not lending; it is leasing, uh-huh. uh, and that so it's, it's think of like a tangible piece of property, uh, and that's how gold is treated under our laws today, which is kind of the irony of it. So if you have an old phone, and then your kid's friend needs a phone, you could say, okay, I'll lease you this, pay me ten dollars a month, keep the phone as long as you want, um, and so you get a payment. In our case, the, the payment is in gold, but the principle is the same. You still remain the owner of the gold. Okay. It's really important because the company that's using it does not get title to it, does not go on their balance sheet. If they declare bankruptcy, it does not uh, go to their creditors. So uh, obviously there are risks. You know, there's no such thing as a yield without risk. Um, but the risks are obviously it could be stolen. It could be stolen by an insider. Uh, the other things that could happen uh, when dealing with you know, physical inventories moving around. Uh, and so we require the lessee to have insurance, of course. And recently we did a press release that we added a major global carrier that um, doesn't want their name to be used in public, like on the internet, uh, uh, you know, mentions. Uh, but it's a London-based global, leading global carrier of insurance that adds a second layer of insurance at the monetary metals level that basically pays out if the lessee's insurance doesn't pay for some reason. And the typical case for that would be if the if, if an insider, the lessee, steals or embezzles the gold, you know, comes in in the middle of the night, unlocks the safe, takes the gold, gets on an airplane to Brazil, um, you know, the lessee's insurance policy wouldn't pay out uh, in a case like that typically, uh, but our policy would. And so um, so that does reduce the, the risk to the investor's um, you know, pretty significantly, we believe. And, and so what kind of a yield would the investor get on that deal, on that particular deal? Um, so, so, so in the most recent deal, um, it's 24 karat gold that's in a Brinks account titled Two Monetary Metals. It has that insurance as well, and the investors on that deal are getting 2%. Okay. Well, it's 2% with very low risks. It, it beats uh, almost anything you get. And, and the duration of the, of the lease? One year. One year. Okay. All right. Well, that's an and you're going to get back your gold, which is not lost its value, at least over time. So, uh, that, that's so, to, so to make this clear, if, if you put 100 ounces in and the interest rate is 2%, which it is in that deal, you get back 102 ounces of gold at sure. the end of the year. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that takes sort of, sort of from a retail perspective, but now why... Uh, I'm interested in noting, I know that the uh, 
uh, Nevada Assemblyman Jim Merchant announced the Nevada Gold and Silver Enabling Act, and I believe you're you've been involved as an advisor, perhaps to uh, to the to to this uh, gentleman or to the Nevada Assembly to the legislature there. Uh, what would this bill do? I, I understand it's been introduced, not yet passed in Nevada. But what would this bill do? It would it would allow, as I understand it, would allow Nevada to issue gold backed bonds. Why would they want to do that? So, there, so there's a whole bunch of benefits um, that are ancillary, but two principal benefits. Uh, one is it removes the currency risk. So right now. Uh, there's about 160 tons of gold mined in the state of Nevada every year. The state gets a 5% royalty tax on that, which is about 8 tons, um, which is about $320 million. So that gold is, of course, sold, and the um, the state gets the 320 And they have $320 million worth of dollar payable expenses that obviously match that. The price of gold drops 10%. Right now, here we are in the way for, you know, on the way to that happening at the moment. Yeah. Um, then Nevada has uh, revenue goes down by thirty-two million dollars. Right. Right. But but the expenses don't. So suddenly they have a surprise budget deficit. Now politicians don't necessarily dislike budget deficits, but nobody likes an unpleasant surprise. And so if the if they replace some paper bonds with gold bonds and change some of their dollar payable to gold payables, then that eliminates that risk. Sure, the price of gold is down, the value of the gold coming in is down, but then so is the value of the payable going out. And so with that matched revenue to expense, liability to asset, um, you eliminate that risk. Uh, and I think and I think that's pretty important. Mm-hmm. But then number two, I think, is, is, um, is the really big one, but underappreciated at the moment. Uh, and that is um, uh, what I call get out of debt at a discount. Now, there's no magic free money machine. Uh, some politicians have asked me, you know, have made that assumption. There's no magic free money here. Uh, but what I propose is a market for exchanging uh, dollar-denominated debt for gold-denominated debt. So when the state issues a gold bond, it obviously auctions it off. That's how bonds are sold. And I propose that that bond not be auctioned for dollars. The state isn't trying to raise dollars. If it wants to raise dollars, it should sell a regular dollar bond. Uh-huh. The state should not auction it for gold. The state isn't trying to raise gold. It has a gold income of eight tons coming in from the gold miners. Uh-huh. The state should say, if you want to buy this bond, bring in and redeem existing Nevada paper and we'll exchange it for this new gold this new gold mm-hmm. bond. Mm-hmm. And so that creates an exchange rate between the dollar bond and the gold bond. And so let me put some numbers to this to make this really hopefully really simple. Let's say they sell a thousand ounce gold bond. Uh, and so its gold price is twelve fifty, then that's about one point two five million dollars worth of gold at today's price. Um, I would expect in the first auction that the market will bring in one point two five million dollars worth of Nevada paper bonds to trade for the one thousand ounce gold bond. Mm-hmm. However, market's not stupid. I think they're gonna figure something out. And that is this is not gold to be paid today or dollars to be paid today. Uh-huh. This is gold or dollars to be paid in a 10 or 20 year time frame, which this is a bond. Um, and so, you know, take your pick, either the dollar is going down in value or gold is going up in value, but either way, the exchange rate uh, that one would expect for gold to dollars in 10 years time doesn't look like $1,250. Uh, 
Right. And so the market is going to, uh, I believe, bring in Nevada paper at a discount. And so let's say they tender 1.5 million worth of Nevada paper to get the 1.25 million, or to get the 1,000 ounce bond. Mm-hmm. Then that means the market has brought in an additional $250,000 worth of debt that Nevada can retire, uh, and which is a 20% discount. Very so Nevada has a debt of about $11 billion. If they can retire it at a 20% discount, there's a $2 billion savings to the state. Wow, that's uh, that. Uh, I could see that's very interesting. And uh, to what do you think the chances of this bill being passed are? You know, it's it's a tough one because in the state of Nevada, it is utterly dominated uh, by the Democrats. So um, we've met with some of the Democrats. Um, some of them uh, appear to be interested, appear to be uh, you know eager to learn learn more and understand it. Um, if they go based on the merits, if they think, okay, how can this help the state and the state government, I think they'll go for it because the way I just described it, it's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's a thing to improve the, the finances of the state. If it gets political, if they perceive this as a Republican measure and they want to spoke the wheel of the Republicans and they're angry about Trump or whatever it is, then um, they certainly have the power to, uh, to kill it. uh, As I understand the bill, it would allow uh, miners to pay their taxes then in gold or silver. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So so today the the miners um, get assessed a tax based on the amount of gold that comes out of the ground. That's fixed in dollars. And then later after the the gold is refined, the miners are selling it and then remitting dollars to the state. So that creates a gold price exposure similar to what any bullion dealer would have. and so that, requ- that requires the miners to um, hedge yeah. and manage that, that price exposure. If the miners can simply remit the gold, that takes out the cost and the complexity and the moving parts of that hedging. Um, and so I think there's a net benefit to the miners as well. That's really interesting. Um, boy, I, I hope it takes hold. I, I just think uh, people could start to understand uh, what an asset-based money is and why it's valuable, why we need to go back to it. With uh, just about 30 seconds left, um, some of these other states, Utah, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, Wyoming, uh, they are not gold or silver-producing states for the most part. Well, some of them do a little bit, but would they have similar benefits? I mean, they would be different, I would guess. So a few of those, Utah and I believe uh, Wyoming, Wyoming do, do produce gold. Uh, gold. Yeah, Arizona so might too do the a little same bit. Thing. The other states, so Arizona produces copper and uh-huh. could back a gold bond with a copper income. Yeah, I just didn't want to push forward in Arizona because it just creates a little extra complexity. Sure, and people sure. right now have enough to get their arms around with, with gold to gold without adding copper to the mix. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to have to leave it go at that. But again, folks, uh, it's monetary-metals.com, monetary-metals.com. Go there, learn about uh, what this company can provide for you if you own gold and want some yield. And I, as I see it, very safe, a relatively low-risk yield uh, for gold that's just otherwise sitting in a vault. You can get it with monetary-metals.com. Thank you, Keith, for being with us. And uh, we'll look to keep up with the progress you're making with uh, with Nevada and, and other things you're up to in the future. Thank you so much for being with us. All right, thank you for having me. 
You bet. Well, folks, uh, that is all the time we have for today. Next week, uh, Mark Faber is scheduled to join me, Peter Talman of Klondike Gold as well, and hopefully we'll get Michael Oliver back with us uh, to keep us updated on gold and other key markets. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.